0: Interested in what you may have forgotten? I forgot to introduce myself last time. Hello, I'm Tim Wordington. I'm the host of this. And before we start, we've had an item of correspondence from who else? A Mr. Ben Baker of Keithley. He was asked a quite interesting question, which is: Is the theme music of Looks Unfamiliar the actual theme music from Looks Familiar? Now, in case anyone doesn't know, that's where I took the name from. What's familiar was a sort of daytime panel show where people like Barry Cryer would come on and go, oh, oh, do you remember, oh, Sammy Davis Jr., when he used to do the dancing, oh, do you remember... Not many people remember he used to do dancing, where they talk about really obvious things that everyone remembered and pretend nobody remembered them. So, yes, I did take the name for that, but not the music, because that piece of music was at the end of a tape somebody sent to TV Cream years ago of offer recordings of TV themes, and they didn't know what that was and nobody at TV Cream could identify it, and nobody's identified it since. So if you know what it is, please, please, please let me know. Anyway, joining me today is musician, writer, and wealthy gad about, apparently, Gareth F. Hirons. Hi, Tim. Hello, Gareth. So, what are you up to and where can we find it?
1: Well, at the moment I'm just revisiting my long-dead blog, Atomic Sourpuss, which you can find at atomicsourpuss.blogspot.com. At the moment I'm uh, doing a review of Oh Yes We Can Love, uh, which is a uh, glam box set of glam and its influences, and indeed things that influence later on. So I'm hoping to get that finished relatively soon, and move on to
0: something else and you did a very fine set of David Bowie reviews on there, it's worth saying. I
1: certainly did, yes. A got on a Full Small Affair, probably the piece of writing that I'm most proud of. And I also must uh, must use this platform to uh, just say, if there's any Merseyside-based drummers out there, I'd really like to start a, uh, a low-quality punk band as soon as possible. I have the itch. Uh, there's a cream for that, but I'd also like to do some music.
0: No, you see, I remember drummers when we're, and when people used to be able to get them. But what I don't necessarily remember is the first thing on your list. <laughs> I have no idea what that was. Gareth, what was that?
1: That was a band from the 1990s, perhaps unsurprisingly, given who's uh, uh, your guest today. Called uh, The Bigger The God.
0: The Bigger The God, right. That sounds a bit kind of... There were a lot of American bands around that era with sort of pretentious names like that or impenetrably pretentious names. Were they American? No, as far as I can tell,
1: they're British. Now, I say as far as I, I, I can tell because this is literally my entire relationship with The Bigger The God. I saw their video on Top of the Pops 2. It was just them in front of a shed filled on a camcorder. Decided to buy the single partly because it sounded good and partly because I felt a bit sorry for them. So I bought the 7 inch of the single which is called Pentaville and yeah that, that is the be all and end all of my time with The Bigger the God. Oh, except I did catch them on uh, Radio 1 Sound City once, but the first track they played was rubbish, so I didn't bother listening any further.
0: Okay, well, I've got to say, I've just tried Googling for The Bigger the God, and I really do apologise, guys, if you're listening, because this isn't intended to slight at all, but I cannot find anything or discog centuries for them. There's not a fan site, so anyone reminiscing about their records. They appear to have really just fallen off the historical radar. So, what sort of year are we talking? About here. Do
1: you know, I, I'm not even that sure myself. It would have been something like uh, 96, 97, I think. I'm just, I'm literally trying to picture what was in my living room when I was uh, watching this video. <laughs> and it's like kind of thinking, well, the green sofa was there, maybe the blue sofa wasn't. So that, that probably puts it around 96, 97. Yeah, that's... Do you know what? I really should have just dug the seven inch out before I came and actually looked at what year it was done. That's going to that, that help really me narrow it stuff. down.
0: Yeah. <laughs> so but so this would have been round about when Britpop was just coming down off its peak and sort mm. of big, beat and the prodigy and things were just coming up I'd have said so yeah and they don't fit into that
1: vertex at all do they no no and I think that's why they were uh, they were as ignored as they were they were li- literally the wrong band in the wrong place at the wrong time at a time when labels were spending a lot of money on bands trying to get new blur or, or oasis taking a lot of risks which was great absolutely great if you're a musician at the time but you know the bottom had to fall out of it eventually and I would imagine the bigger the god would have been one of the ones that uh, felt the sting of that more than others
0: did they have support from, say, The Evening Session or Chris Evans or anyone? I know you mentioned you heard them in session, but where they actually played on it?
1: I, I never heard their uh, songs played by anybody ever, except for Top of the Pops 2 that one time.
0: Would you recommend them to anyone? Or are you hankering for a kind of retrospective compilation of their work?
1: I think that that one track, <laughs> and I've never listened to the B-side, but I, I think that that one track is is fantastic as a sort of a just a one-off kind of blast of uh, relatively punky sort of stuff, which wasn't really being done at the time, well, by British bands anyway. Um, Yeah, I think it, you know... It deserved to be a one-hit wonder.
0: So, yeah, but you can't have a box set with one track, so the answer to that is no, Uh, basically. Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I think so. But I had to launch into a spirited defence, you
0: know. Okay, well, The Bigger the God, if any of you are out there, your moment has come. Please get in touch, and we'll mention you in the future one, because I don't like to think of you guys being this forgotten. This really isn't nice at all, but something I'm happy that has been forgotten, because I sort of remember these, and I'm not happy about this at all, is your next choice.
1: You want this? You'll never cut the mustard!
0: going on? Do think food again, Okay, I know what you're all thinking. That is not an early advert for Dave Grohl and company. They did not have their own <laughs> line of action figures. Gareth, what actually was that?
1: This is the uh, terrifying phenomenon that is food fighters.
0: Yeah, no, this is kind of falls into the same bracket as Phil Catterall the other week mentioned madballs and boglins, which are huge, grotesque heads in lieu of a toy. And these are more or less the same thing, aren't they?
1: Essentially, yes. It's uh, it's processed foodstuffs come to life, uh, anthropomorphic, and uh, packing weapons.
0: Right, so my memory is, we're talking very early 90s, maybe? Yeah, late 80s, early 90s, I think. So this is after Evan Dorkin had created Milk and Cheese. Oh, absolutely, and yeah. Every day I see things, particularly see that that sort of chip comb man that's being shared on Twitter all the time. It's supposed to be terrifying. I think, that is just... Infringing milk and cheese. So th- these were, he probably had a case here as well, I think. Well, also, you have to remember this was the time of Rock
1: Lords. So uh, almost anything was being turned into an action figure stroke transforming restaurant. Uh, restaurant? Stroke transforming robot at the time.
0: Well, were these actually transforming restaurants? Did they change from food into another thing? Because all I remember is seeing them in a the catalogue and thinking, go away. No, I don't I, know if they have properties or abilities or.
1: I think they had um, a, a very few points of rotation and that was about it. Um, so
0: no AA batteries required.
1: <laughs> no, no. But it's not just the fact that they, they look to be utterly rubbish as toys. It's, it's the whole sort of concept of you, you kind of man at the top of the food chain and you know, you, you have almost everything else on the planet is food mm. and then you prepare a piece of food and it attacks you so it? you have to kill the food twice essentially it just it, it blew my mind i was thinking about this maybe a little bit too much this afternoon and then mm. the sort of the ramifications the scientific ramifications have, have just hit me square between the eyes and i, I just uh, my mind's
0: blown well what i really don't get is why somebody thought food would be a good basis for a toy because i'm racking my brains before that i had you know let's leave out the sort of ethical rights and wrongs of the situation but the fact was there were toys that were marketed as girls toys that were like you know the super deluxe mega kitchen where it had you know plastic food in it as well and the only thing i can think of is mr potato head which i never had much time for it's just a thing you stuck some things in yeah. went, wow, look, it's got a face and... It's not like Mr. Potato Head has an axe and is going to try and kill you. Well, yeah, yeah that, that's about who thought we should A, we should do more toys based on food and B, we should make them evil. I,
1: actually, from looking at the uh, the Wikipedia uh, site, citation needed, obviously, it does appear that there were good pieces of food and bad pieces of food. It's not really clearly delineated as to, to what made them good or bad, what what, what have made them sort now, of sort of turn against each other.
0: But... It's the division the, the, the baddies were like fast food and, you know, ice creams and so on. And the goodies were, you know, uh, broccoli and kale <laughs> and brown rice. Come no, to save too- the day from malnutrition. It's not
1: even that. They can't even say they were trying to teach children about proper nutrition because if they were all fast food, as far as I can remember, from the list that I've all too recently looked at. It's, uh, almost certain one of the main good guys was a burger, for instance. So...
0: Yeah, well, he'd have been in trouble time. if the hamburglar toy had also been owned by one of the kids who got it. Now, are these collectible?
1: God, I hope not. <laughs> I honestly hope I never ever ever encounter one of these things again and if I if I go to somebody's house and see one on the mantelpiece I'm just running screaming you really, screaming from the house
0: do you really think that's going to happen somebody would not just have food fighters but would have them proudly on display
1: the second I drop my guard Tim that's when that's going to happen
0: people have like you know the Jerry Anderson dinky toys and things like that they do not have food fighters or rock lords or visionaries or those ones where they had the f- bits of flint in them and you turn the thing and they lit up or oh i remember them so... black star that was it not oh. the david bowie had, but I, like, I do like to think he was singing about them but unfortunately i wasn't able to make that joke because of what happened immediately after black star came out so i ah, guess well, i think well... enough time has passed now to say was he singing about this sort of cowboy that lit up but
1: <laughs> yeah the, the healing has begun
0: we're moving on now to again something that is very well known to me <laughs> Music, if you can call it music, that means a great deal to me and it probably means nothing to those people listening. Gareth, what was that?
1: that was the theme tune from a uh, Doral software game for the ZX Spectrum 48M128K called Saboteur and uh, we're also going to mention Saboteur 2
0: as well right I didn't have Saboteur 2 but I had Saboteur and I will like, say genuinely say this has happened a couple of times I've been in company where somebody has mentioned Saboteur and everyone around the table is immediately sort of singing that music so to those who <laughs> remember it it really does mean something but can you explain what it is and why it means so much to people
1: not really no but I I mean, one thing I think is that it was a well-regarded sort of budget game for the ZX Spectrum. So kind of mm. one pound ninety-nine, and you could, you could have yourself a full game. It was quite uh, adaptable. It had uh, nine skill levels so that you could... Uh, it was a sort of slightly different adventure on each one. Yeah. Uh, every time with the, um, the sort of intention of you, you are a ninja type... Essentially,
0: Uh, (laughs) non-copyright ninja. I think
1: (laughs) ninja stereotype essentially, Uh, and you have to beat up guards, dogs, and avoid uh, gun emplacements as you infiltrate a mysterious something facility. I guess I'd I'd say
0: it's somewhere between a factory and a sewer. Yeah, yeah, Yeah. pretty much.
1: And get a disc with secret plans for a secret something. A floppy
0: disc. A yeah. floppy
1: disc, yeah, a five-and-a-half-inch one, I think. In
0: yeah.
1: fact. And if you've got time and you've found it, swap it with a bomb to self-destruct the uh, facility and escape via the uh, helicopter that's on the roof.
0: And, of course, the other thing worth mentioning just at this point is that everyone had their own copy because uh, as well as being on the very distinctive blue Durrell cassette, it also had... The leader tape said, Durell, 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 and there was a message at the start of the game saying, warning, if this has been copied to you by one of your mates, please phone this number and tell Ian Durell, and he will come and visit them personally, or something along those lines. Everyone was too scared to copy it, so I think everyone actually had the original.
1: I believe there was a reward. I could be wrong about that. Really?
0: Yeah. uh... (laughs) Did a ninja come round and take it from your house? I I think possibly, yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Um...
1: But no, it was was a good game. And because you could uh, sort of gradually build up kind of uh, the the skill level required, Mm. it was infinitely adaptable to, well... Not infinitely, obviously. Very finite, in fact. Given there's only nine, uh, nine skill levels. <laughs> um, well,
0: there was a weird rash of uh, martial arts related games for the Spectrum and the Commodore sixty four around then. Because it was the official Bruce Lee game, which was great. But if you started jumping, you timed the jump at the right moment, just held it down. You could pretty much get through every screen without trying. So <laughs> it wasn't difficult. There was Yeehaw Kung Fu, which I think was originally an uh, arcade game yes, was it, yes where... that was a
1: Konami um, uh, arcade conversion. that was one of the very first uh, other than Karate Champ Daytree's mm. uh, Karate Champ one of the very first one on one fighting
0: games I remember uh, one of the enemies was called Feedle and he threw crockery at you he wasn't on screen yeah
1: <laughs> Yes, there was um, there was some odd odd uh, characters in
0: that, none yeah. of which
1: were playable. You could only play as yes, one yeah. guy, um,
0: and there was also way of the exploding fist, which is their sort of sticking to the proper rules of. I think it was a karate and kung fu hybrid, but it yeah. had the proper point system. Oh, a uh, proper one on one action and that weirdly, for a combat game, it was a sort of strategy game as well. It was like real martial arts, but saboteur sort of welded it to a different kind of gameplay. I think that's why it's well remembered. But they did ways- Saboteur two though, didn't they?
1: Yeah, yeah, I'll just, I will come to that in a second, yeah. but I was just going to say, Saboteur is, is arguably one of the first stealth games, and obviously kind of, mm. bam, Metal Gear, eventually, the most uh, well-known, and Splinter Cell, the most sort of well-known uh, examples of that, Yeah. Uh, but where, where would they be without Saboteur, I ask you? And the answer is... Nowhere. Yeah. Absolutely nowhere. Um, yeah, sorry. Uh, returning to Saboteur 2. Mm. Now, this was a bit of a harder sell. Yeah. For two reasons. Number one, the protagonist was a lady. Yes, now, you're right. Yeah. I'm not going to... It was a different time. I'm not mm. defending it. But at the time, I remember being surprised that there was a female main character in the game. Mm. Um, and sadly things haven't got all that much better. No, no. So have have we really progressed in that that station? I wouldn't say so. However, returning to the, the second problem, the instructions, the instruction leaflet, pretty much the first line in that says that the person that you were playing in Saboteur 1 completed his mission and died.
0: He was uh, mortally wounded. <laughs> was he even die on his way back to his home planet? And there's a sworn affidavit saying he wouldn't return. Okay, pretty much,
1: yeah. So, so you're playing as his sister who has sworn revenge. Okay. Oh, actually, the third problem was it was it was hard as nails. Just right. I kind of, never got to grips with that one properly. Most of the uh, the opponents were robots rather than uh, uh, people. So they took a lot more punishment. The dogs have been replaced by panthers. And there are also bats that you couldn't see properly. But it all, it, you know, it, it de- delivered for a sequel. It was a bigger, harder version of... The original. Was it in the same sort of setting? Yes, yes. It, was, uh, it, it wasn't It was the same facility, but it was infiltrating a, a facility of now, some sort. Now,
0: was there a bit with sort of a body of water? Yes. Did you have to jump when you are on the water?
1: Possibly. At any Possibly.
0: point, did a fin stick out of the water? You had to jump over it. You can't see what I'm getting uh, at now. No, here, I, ca- can't I can you? now, but,
1: but what I can't think of is a, is a decent response that makes it look like I was playing along in the first place
0: rather than just kind
1: of stood, stood here with my jaw dropped, sort of uh,
0: grunting at you.
1: Um, well played, sir. Well
0: played. <laughs> OK, so on to your next choice. Now, I'm not sure there ever was a game of this, but I really wish there was. Forever special here on the USA, this- Stand up, will you? Now I'm going to stand up. All right, I'm going to stand up and watch Hulk Hogan take this man apart on his way to WrestleMania, where hopefully he will take Sergeant Slaughter apart as well. Now, I may be one of the only people listening who actually remembers this, as we've established before now, and I'll come back to how and why I remember it in a minute. But please tell the ladies and gentlemen what was going on there.
1: Right. Well, this is meant to. Uh... Meant to get across the concept of the Triangle of Terror in the World Wrestling Federation in 1991. Uh, it was composed of uh, Sergeant Slaughter, the uh, former All American boot camp uh, instructor and G.I. Joe member, uh, who had recently uh, turned his back on America to uh, sympathize with Saddam Hussein in Iraq. There was Colonel Mustafa, uh, who was actually played by the Iron Sheikh, who was Iranian, which didn't make any sense whatsoever. Uh, and uh, General Adnan, who was uh, an old fella.
0: General Adnan, you see, he was the one I almost forgot. Was he sort of the uh, <laughs> he was, the, the third wheel?
1: Absolutely, yeah. He was the Mike Mills one in the Triangle Terror.
0: <laughs> he wrote the B-side. Yeah. But,
1: <laughs> but, and he had to sing on one of them.
0: But the thing was, this was actually started during the first Gulf War, didn't it? It did, yeah. And it was a, a very sort of ham-fisted, unsubtle satire, wasn't it? That, you know, sort of, I don't know, Hulk Hogan and Miss Kitten and so on would take on these these damn crazy foreigners and win because that's what America does. But that's basically all there was to it, wasn't it?
1: Yeah, yeah. Mm. I mean, I've looked up some background on this, and essentially, um, yeah, that, that was what it was. It was meant mm. to be jumping on the Zeke east of America, sort of gearing up for war. But uh, Vince McMahon, who's the, the person who runs WWF and signs off on all the uh, sort of uh, storylines... Uh, has gone on record as saying that he honestly didn't think they were going to go to war. So it would just be a, a slight pop culture sort of upsurge. Right. And then nothing would actually come of it. When they went to war, which they did whilst Sergeant Slaughter was World Wrestling Federation champion, having used nefarious means to unseat the Ultimate Warrior, it just kind of it turned people off in droves because they, they didn't want to be essentially... Uh, confronted with the reality of what was going on in what should have been the escapism of watching professional wrestling?
0: Yeah, so it wasn't quite in the same vein as Big Daddy's Saturday Slam Down, where uh, he was. A fighting against giant haystacks and the bag napper, who no-one remembers, who had an umbrella where he, he hooked, planted old ladies' bags from the audience. <laughs> <laughs> it wasn't, wasn't quite like that. I think what's interesting, though, is, you know, the, the name Triangle of Terror, obviously, years later, the whole, not that I like using this phrase as well, but the phrase Axis of Evil came into it, which is pretty much
1: <laughs> Triangle of Terror. Absolutely. Um, I mean, and is any shape more terrifying than a triangle? Uh, I just need to... One more thing quickly before we move on, which is that um, this actually had a really bad effect on uh, WrestleMania, which is uh, WWF's main show every year. Mm. So WrestleMania Seven was meant to be at a huge stadium in Los Angeles, and a couple of weeks beforehand, they moved it to a venue over the road, which was much smaller. And they cited security concerns. They said that they'd had uh, threats against Sergeant Slaughter. That there were people who were going to bomb the arena or attempt to kill mm. him when he went to WrestleMania. What actually happened was. Nobody bought tickets because they were bored of seeing Hulk Hogan fight the foreign menace. (laughs) Um, And also, if you wanted to be low-key about it, why have you moved it over the road?
0: Well, I'm not sure why they just threatened him, but the reason I know it, the reason I remember it was... um... We went on holiday, family holiday, to Torquay around that point. And we stayed in the hotel where they had, you know, Sky and the other satellite channels. And at that point, that was still a novelty. That was still, I could overcome my, even at that age, I had a burning hatred of the Rupert Murdoch and News International and so on. But uh, I could overcome that for the novelty of Sky. And, uh, you know, that all these channels were, I remember we watched Monkey, we were really happy to see, <laughs> thought we'd never see that again. We watched License to Drive about five times on one of the movie channels. This show the same films, like about five or six times a day then, it would say at the end of it, if you've missed the start of this, you can see it at 3pm. But every single ad break, and that had an advert ad for the Triangle of Terror's upcoming wrestling match
1: which was probably SummerSlam 91's match made in hell where the the three members of the triangle terror took on the ultimate warrior and hulk hogan in a handicap match with special guest referee sid justice why do i know all of this (laughs) why do i still know all of this
0: yeah well i think it's because the advert was on so much but even that was not on as much around then as the when tv quick was first launched the adverts for that Start and end of every outbreak. The session singers going. That's the way. Uh huh. Uh huh. I like it. And an old lady buying TV Quick. Now they ran it for three weeks. In the first week, Jeremy Beadle tried to steal their copy. The second week, it was Rod Hull and Emu. Now, <laughs> come on! An old lady did not manage to keep hold of TV Quick when Emu was trying to get it. That's rubbish. The third week, it was the Spitting Image puppets so of John Major and Neil Kinnock, who then started headbutting each other. And then they thought we've plugged TV Quick enough now. Let's move on.
1: I must say, I think I think you're probably doing Rod Hull down there. Uh, obviously, it was Emu that was trying to steal the TV quick.
0: Oh yeah, he rod, was, trying to, re- just, he was uh... trying to restrain him. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> to leave that lady's TV quick alone, Emu. <laughs> <laughs> he didn't actually say it because it was just you no, know, there was just music. But that was his intent, I'm sure. Absolutely, he's very very honourable. This old Rod,
1: he was never ever complicit in uh, in Emu's uh, misadventures. Well, Always a stabilising
0: influence. Well, he never had. In the Rod Hull and Emu annual, Emu had adventures on his own. And I remember being sorely disappointed that Rod didn't. And you know, <laughs> would have been lovely to have a strip out him doing his accounts or something. Before anyone makes the obvious, obvious joke there, which I wouldn't be happy with, let's move on to your next choice. <laughs>
1: One of our monsters has dared the others to spend a night in haunted wood. They've got some monster munch. the only snack big enough to see them through the night ahead. Of course, they're too big to be scared. But even big, brave monsters get frightened. Sometimes. And this is one of those times. So it was all a big trick. Wasn't it?
0: Now, you're probably all thinking, why is Monster Munch here? We all remember Monster Munch. We even remember what the first monster in the original wave of them before they shuffled them around was. But this isn't just Monster Munch. This is when they started to experiment and have different flavours. And there's one flavour in particular. And which flavour is it?
1: It is sizzling bacon.
0: Sizzling bacon.
1: Please note no G in, in sizzling. It's a S I double Z L I N
0: apostrophe. Was there an apostrophe? I wasn't sure about that. There was that. an apostrophe, yes. Now, this actually it lasted for quite a long time, didn't it? I would say possibly early 90s to late 90s.
1: I think. I picture it as being from the mid sort of 80s or mid to late 80s Right of so even I, even
0: longer yeah I was yeah. I
1: was seeing I've seen packs of them for at least four or five years mm. albeit few and far between
0: Well you see I think they only disappeared when there was this idiotic not idiotic in marketing terms but with all kinds of snacks and chocolates and so on they had this it was when sort of uh, you know I love the 70s so on kicked off they went back to basics and you know um like for a couple of years they did away with all the Variants of Whisper, apart from, you know, Plain Whisper did the with the Mint, the Whisper Gold, the Cappuccino, which I think was a bonkers decision. And they did the same with Monster Munch. They went back to good old core value <laughs> Monster Munch, roast beef and pickled onion, which... People say, you know, oh, you know, it's rose tinted glasses that you th- you think things were bigger when you were a kid. Mm. You think they tasted different. Now, there are two things about Pickled Onion Monster Munch. One is that in Devin Brown's autobiography he tells a story about this very bizarre story about being on the playground where he opened the back of Monster Munch and it was a big Monster Munch all joined together. Mm. And the size he describes it as, it does not tally with the size they are now. No, no. But the second thing is, I remember if somebody opened a bag of pickled onion when you were a kid, it was like chemical warfare. Stank the whole building out. And they were quite often banned in school and so on. And so they have changed. But yeah, it was, they went back to all that. It's that weird advert saying, help, we can't find the monster costumes. Can you find them? With Jeffrey from Rainbow saying, I've been told to say nothing. Something (laughs) odd like that.
1: There was a, a couple of stages to the uh, this uh, travesty that left us sizzling bacon monster months free. Uh, <laughs> the first is, like I say, even at the time, they were relatively scarce, and I, I, I don't think they ever really caught on as a flavour. Mm. British public, you should be ashamed of yourself, by the way. Not just for this, for many things, but mainly <laughs> for this. This is the worst thing you have ever done... I should probably not attack the listeners of this podcast, really. That's quite a bad idea.
0: Uh, yeah. I don't know, because, uh, you know, what if uh, Piers Morgan's listening? You can actually attack, attack him. I'd be... Uh, sorry, let's move on.
1: <laughs> Piers Morgan, this is on your head. You are why we don't have Sizzling Bacon Monster <laughs> Munch anymore. Yes, so they, they sort of remodelled Monster Munch, did smaller pieces, and aimed mm. them more squarely at children. Uh, there was... Um, the flavours were paired back to... Pickled Onion was the only original flavour you could get from yeah. And it was spaghetti sauce and beef burger with the other two. Oh, yes. Beef yeah. burger was not that different to roast beef, to be fair. Spaghetti sauce, I never tried. It did not sound good. And then there was, like you say, the whole back to basics. Mm. Uh, let's go back to the 70s, 80s flavors bit mm. where uh, roast beef came back. Flaming Hot had been introduced in the, oh, in yes, the middle yes, there, yes, which is, yeah. has um, stayed in stayed in the sizzling bacon slot, essentially. Mm. And I can't begrudge them because that's a hell of a flavor. There was another one that was discarded along the way, which was cheese. Cheese monster munch actually really really nice.
0: Yeah, but you miss um, you're missing the the elephants in the room here. There uh, was ice cream flavour.
1: I am deliberately missing that <laughs> to support my own argument.
0: But uh, what other crisps do you sorely miss that are gone?
1: There was a, a Thundercats branded crisp. Really, I quite
0: liked. Yep. Was it? Can I just guess? Was it in the? Was it sort of ostensibly in the shape of the Thundercats logo, but just a mess of inflated maize?
1: Yes, that, that's what it was meant to be, and it mm. was not. In any yeah. way, shape or form. Uh, I miss the original um, the original Space Raiders. I like Space Raiders, but the original ones that were sort of a triangle shape rather than a, ah, a triangle but, of terror.
0: But before were. that, it was KP alien spacers And it was in the the shape of sort of Ross Wellstrove, villain, and Bastor Galactic Command faces. Oh, right, okay. And they've been completely forgotten about.
1: Well, even by me, it would appear. Yeah, um, yeah. And when Cheetos originally came to Britain, and they did the ones that were a bit like knick-knacks, because um, there's two mm. type. Well, actually, I think it's only one type of Cheeto in America, which is the knick knack style ones. But every time they've tried to launch the brand in Britain, they've they've either accompanied it with or replaced it with a What's It type.
0: Yeah, yeah.
1: Um, and you don't need that. You don't need another cheese What's It type crisps. No. Just, forgive me if I'm wrong, but we've got bloody What's Its. Yeah, so. yeah,
0: yeah. And I I miss original Ringos as well. Yeah. When they were the sort of what would you describe them as? They're like those They're foam sun visors that you used to get in the swimming baths. Yes. Not sun visors, are they? They those things that used to keep shampoo out of your eyes. When yeah. You, yeah. yeah. they that kind of sh- They were original Ringo shape. That's what shape they were. Uh,
1: <laughs> and it's also it's a, it's a shame that we've lost uh, some flavors of Skips and Quavers. Yes. way, Because yeah. again, bacon Skips mm. and bacon Quavers, very nice. Yeah. Uh, beef. Flavours beef skips. Yeah. A nice prawn cocktail. What about both.
0: sweet corn relish flavour skips?
1: I don't think I ever tried those. I, I would happily, if you brought on a packet mm. now, I would happily try That them. was
0: when they were advertised by Clumsy Colin, oh, the sort of right, biker right. that fell over because he hadn't had skips. Because it's one thing that skips do, it's help you stand upright.
1: I'm thinking at this stage we should probably move on before we start talking about the uh, not even borderline racist uh, advert for Chinese spare rib skips.
0: Yeah, you um, see, I was going to bring up my um, crisp that I miss, which is flavour and shake, but now that you've mentioned <laughs> that, let's move on.
1: Did you hear about the Bennett? What about that? Well, according to Ernie down the morgue, this huge chain of American funeral directors offered them one million dollars in exchange for their business.
0: Never. Mm, Honest? You never guess what? They turned them down. Good job, too. I don't fancy competing with Yankee Doodle Dandies. Okay, and this is your final choice. And this is one that I think a lot of people remember the name of, but not very much about it at all gareth what was that uh, this is a sitcom called
1: fun at the funeral parlor i should mention by the way that this was very nearly world of pub but the fact mm. that i have a dvd of world of pub made yeah. me think it probably wasn't obscure enough i can't find this one for love nor money i'm not necessarily saying i want to but it's something that that i i saw and i had a great deal of trouble a explaining to people mm. b finding somebody who'd actually seen it as well
0: now, I'll just come in from my angle, from what I remember of it. Now, Fun at the Funeral Parlour, I'm fairly sure it was either on BBC Three or BBC Choice initially. And my recollection is it came in the middle of when there was that deluge of sitcoms that had just been commissioned on the basis of somebody said, yeah, you're a bit funny, you. Can you be a bit like The League of Gentlemen? Yeah, you've got a series. And there were six episodes full of... Yeah, I'm not saying necessarily fun of the funeral parlour here, but there's so many things where it was ambient comedy, it was unfunny, there was loud, repetitive background music. These things just were overhyped. They were in your face and they got to saturation point where I thought, I'm not watching any more of these. It might be another Los Dos Bros and it can go away. And I think I'm fairly sure... I tried fun at the funeral parlor and came away possibly with a negative impression because of how it was at the time. I'm just wondering if I missed something really I mean thinking back wasn't it kind of not sort of dark but kind of surreally macabre like slapsticky, like kind of rent a ghost in the funeral parlor with people who were in things years ago where the sort of um not John Pertwee, but had he been alive, he might have guessed it in it sort of thing. <laughs> is that anywhere near what it
1: was? That's very much my impression, and my impression is quite sketchy, because I, I have only seen, to my knowledge, two episodes of this, and they may have been the same episode. But um, it's based in a Welsh funeral parlour. I know it was Welsh because I remember thinking I must... Mentioned this to my mother, who's Welsh, and uh, a a great uh, kind of uh, consumer of Welsh media. So there's three brothers that run a a funeral parlour. One is trying to be a rock star. Mm. Uh, One can only communicate using a speak-and-spell. And Uh, and the the third is essentially the straight man who just wants to keep the funeral parlour running Do we whilst all this zaniness goes on in the background. I I have looked none of things Mm. up. I I prefer to... You know me, I like to operate very raw, very sort of punk rock. Yeah. uh, And I I don't let actually knowing about something get in the way of me talking about it. Mm. So, uh, yeah, I've got absolutely no idea. All I can tell you is that the plot of one of the episodes was that they were doing the funeral, the high-profile funeral for... Shaking Stephens, uh, Wales's premier Shaking Stephens cover artist. Uh, and the one who was starting a, a rock band thought it would be great to play at the
0: funeral. And his, uh, right. his straight-laced brother was trying to prevent him from doing so. Now, I'm getting the impression, just now, from what I remember, we're talking about sort of 2001, and one, two maybe, on. Definitely. It would either be just before... I went to university or just Mm -hmm.
1: after, and that was 2003. Well, I'm
0: wondering if one of the reasons people took against it might have been because that was when Six Feet Under just arrived, which people forget. The first series of that was actually, it was like a very, very bleak comedy. Yeah. And it did actually win a comedy award that first year. And then I am not keen on it after that. It became nasty. It became unpleasant to watch. I just couldn't watch it. Um, I'm wondering if, you know, people were saying... Yeah, yeah, yes, yes, I see that this is comedy, but oh, oh, there's an American programme, which is basically the blanket reaction now to any anything that's made that's not from HBO. People say, yeah, yes, but HBO, yes, but Joss Whedon, yes, but... Uh, so that might be what did for poor old fun at the funeral parlour. Quite
1: possibly. Uh, I mean, I, I, it would certainly have been mm. sort of contemporaneously shown with Six Feet Under yeah. when it first came over. But I think just kind of, uh, it's probably a combination of... Low profile, yeah. Uh, lack of promotion, mm. god awful slot. I mean, yeah, this was definitely a two in the morning job as mm. far as I remember, and you know, and just it being very regional, so very yeah. sort of Welsh, very highly Welsh accented. Mm. Um, yeah, I think all of those and and your point about six feet under. I I think essentially it was it was nobbled before it had a chance to actually do yeah. anything.
0: Well, I'm just wondering because that, that really was a black hole for TV comedy in terms of because there were so many stinkers around then or so many things that didn't deserve a series that so many of the things collapsed in under their wake into a big sort of swirling pit of forgottenness. I mean, I would go as far as to say I don't think Believe Nothing, the Rick Mail sitcom was... Wasn't brilliant, but I would I would say dig it out again, watch that. It had its moments. I will really fly the flag, and people might be amazed by this. For so, it's called Wild West, which Simon Nye wrote, which had Dawn French and Catherine Tate in it. I think it was Catherine Tate's first actual leading role in something. Oh, right. Okay. And uh, I remember thinking that was pretty good, actually. Mm-hmm. Possibly a few other things. Anything else that stands out for you from that era? Well, believe nothing certainly does. I'm glad mm. you mentioned that. Actually. Yeah, that's. Uh, I almost thought
1: I made that one up myself. Yeah, but, um, yeah it was. Uh, that was. I seem to remember the time slot on that was quite difficult. Sunday
0: well. nights. I think. I think they were trying to make it into the new, the new Statesman, but it was a bit too high concept, really. Totally different show. It, yeah, it, you yeah. just couldn't, couldn't sell it on the same. Uh, wasn't he okay. always doing things like cloning himself and so on, which uh, doesn't make for an easy-to-follow plot? <laughs> I believe so. It's not like who shot Alan Bastard, is it?
1: Funnily enough, another thing that I was watching around the same time and had had the same trouble in sort of provoking a reaction from people about or getting them to watch mm. was Garth Marenghi's Dark Place, which right. has since gone on to great cult acclaim. Yeah,
0: you see, I was never keen, but I could see what they were trying to do. Yeah. And I was surprised that that, you know, flopped. And the other one that surprised me initially, because it went on to become very successful, was Peep Show was absolutely battered when it started. Yeah.
1: I still remember seeing uh, some of the episodes from the first series mm. and thinking it didn't really have much about it. Yeah. And in yeah. the second series, they'd sort of, they'd refined the concept a little bit. The characters were a bit more bedded in. Mm. Uh, the theme music had changed. Uh, and yeah. it was clear that they were they were almost doing a, a just a, a two almost I- ignoring the first series. Yeah, which is sometimes exactly what a comedy show needs to get off the ground. In fact. Come to think of it, I remember having to convince people, practically drag them to their seats and chain them down, to watch The Mighty Boosh in its first series, and look what happened with that.
0: I was exactly the same with Father Ted. I mean, uh, people won't believe this now, but when it first started, I was really excited that it was a new Graham Linehan sitcom on, because I'd loved Paris, mm-hmm. their Fezu, which you can't get just anywhere at all, which is uh, Alexis Aeol and Neil Morrissey as artists in
1: I, I loved of, that. I mean, yeah. I, I'm a, a huge Alexi Sale fan and was at most yeah, of the time, yeah. so I, I, I watched all of that religiously, and I, I'd love to see that again.
0: But, I mean, I would love to see that. I'd love to see Paris on DVD. I'd even love to see Fun at the Funeral Part, just so I can revisit it, really. Oh,
1: absolutely. So would I. I it could be that everything I've said about it is completely yeah. wrong, and I was just incredibly drunk, which, but, is, which is also a possibility of watching something at 2 o'clock in the morning.
0: But most of all, get Hardwick House on DVD. None of you expected me to say that, did you? <laughs>
1: And Piers Morgan, I want my sizzling bacon back. I'm coming for you, son. Uh, and bring back all of the things I just talked about, except Food Fighters. Throw them <laughs> in a bin and set fire to them. And fire the bin into the sun.
0: And if you do that, please, please take a photo and tweet it. Gareth, it's been a pleasure. Oh, Thank you. Pleasure's all been lying, <laughs> Apart from Food Fighters. <laughs> except